This is Recruiting Daily's Recruiting Live podcast, where we look at the strategies behind the world's best talent acquisition teams. We talk recruiting, sourcing, and talent acquisition. Each week, we take one overcomplicated topic and break it down so that your three-year-old can understand it. Make sense? Are you ready to take your game to the next level? You're at the right spot. You're now entering the mind of a hustler. Here's your host, William Tincup. Ladies and gentlemen, this is William Tincup, and you're listening to the Recruiting Daily Podcast. Today we have Allison on from Guild, and we're talking about using education as a game-changing recruiting benefit. This is awesome, as uh, I, I, I can see this unfolding in a lot of really, really, really interesting ways, and I can't wait to talk to Allison about it. And uh, so let's get started. Allison, would you do us a favor, the audience a favor, and introduce yourself and Guild? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. I'm Allison Salisbury. I lead our solutions team at Guild. And what that means is I work with all of our employer partners to help them design education and reskilling initiatives at scale in order to attract and retain and upskill um, their workforce with a particular focus on their frontline workforce. And I've spent my, my whole career in education and, and around education and workforce issues, mostly focused on how do we create more opportunity for working adults through education um, and through skilling. So it's great to be here. So, so first of all, there's a lot of things to unpack. So education, you're looking at uh, and you're thinking about education in, in really a broad way. Uh, courses, you've used the words uh, reskilling and upskilling. And so let's, let's unpack a couple of those things. When, when you're working with uh, employers and maybe they have, you know, historically we've, you know, like we're going to reimburse you for your college credits or you're going to college or if you get an A's or, you know, because I'm some uh, monolithic kind of model um, that's not going to get it done in today's market uh, clearly. And that's not what the talent today needs. So kind of how do you, not how, but when you're moving them over to kind of the array of things that they should offer to their both candidates and employees, what does that look like? Yeah, great question. I think it's really helpful to start with sort of the story of where this space has been historically, where we are now, what's changed and kind of where I think it's going. And so as you mentioned, the the sort of old world way of doing this is tuition reimbursement programs. They typically sat, um, you know, within a benefits arm. Um, They were typically only available um, uh, or inaccessible, accessible to more of your white collar workforce used primarily to go back to school to get an MBA or a master's degree. And then you basically pay out of pocket, get reimbursed later. And it's one of the, you know, one of the perks um, of working for your employer. Uh, that started to change about um, five years or so, six years or so ago. Um, uh, we um, have been really working with a number of incredibly innovative employers to change the game around um, how we think about education as a benefit. Um, and so that game started to change when we started thinking about how do we make education more accessible, um, available, and higher quality to our frontline workforce, um, when historically it was only available to the corporate workforce. In order to do that, you have to crack a few things. You have to, you have to figure out how do you make sure that that frontline worker doesn't have to pay out of pocket and be reimbursed later, because guess what? Most of them can't afford to do that. You also have to think categorically about the new kinds of learning experiences that we need to make available to them. 
that these are often um, workers who need English language learning, who haven't finished high school. Um, they've likely not gone to college, or if they have gone to college, um, they probably have debt and no degree. Um, the, the rates of dropout for low opportunity populations are, are, are pretty darn high. And so it really forces you to completely reimagine uh, the education as a benefit space to be more accessible and more inclusive and more high impact for that frontline population. As a part of that happening, the Walmarts and Chipotles um, and Disney's of the world, who are really some of the, the first actors here, started to see how high um, ROI that investment was. That for every dollar that they spent on education, especially in their front line, they got about $2.84 back in return. And that was primarily because they were seeing such a tremendous impact on retention that people were staying so much longer um, in, in role because of this benefit that was offered and also on talent attraction, that people were saying that they were actually coming and joining that employer specifically because they had this benefit. They could take advantage of these education and skilling programs, oftentimes in a debt-free way, as a way of building their skills and building their career and moving out of that frontline role and into a new role. That brings us into where we are today. Um, and I think the biggest shift to that story is that we're also seeing employers starting to say, this isn't just a benefit for talent attraction and talent retention. This is also a strategic investment we're making in the future of our workforce, that we have these critical skill shortages at every level within our organization, particularly roles that start with digital or end in manager, and we can't hire the talent we need to fill these gaps. And so we need to actually start building that talent from within and what better place to look than our frontline workforce who are really hungry for these learning opportunities. And so that brings us into the, into the future where it's not only about retention, it's not only about attraction, it's also about reskilling our frontline workforce to actually fill those critical talent gaps um, from within. So I love that. And I believe that, that what, you know, Again, five, six years ago, you could post a job in Taco Bell, let's say, and, uh, you know, a couple thousand people would apply to it. And so you had a surplus. And so, you know, you might not need to, you might not be thinking about some of these things. Now you see a, a help wanted sign pretty mm -hmm. much everywhere you go. So, it, you know, to, to what you alluded to both in the now and in the future, it becomes a competitive advantage. And, and that and thusly, the investment is in the individual to make them better, yeah, for the attraction and retention, which is stated and covered, but also um, so, that, so that, you know, essentially you're harvesting talent instead of casting outward and, and thinking about how do I, we attract, you know, 5,000, you know, applicants to this job or whatever it looks like. Um, how do we promote from within? How do we how do we do that? Well, you got that. They have to have the skills. You can have the intent, or you can have the desire, but the, those the folks folks have to have skills. Which leads me to two questions. One is, you know, what are you seeing from candidates in terms of like what specifically do they skills uh, do they desire? You know, mm -hmm. that's kind of a big, big you know, broad array. I'm no, I get that, but just like what are you kind of seeing? And the second question is who owns this internally? Mm. Is, it, is it the old kind of training and development, learning and development? Is it benefits and benefits management? Is it something new? Uh, HR operations, like who owns, you know, upscaling? Yeah, um, I'll start with the second one first. Sure. 
And that's, um, it completely depends. And often it's not a single individual. Um, we certainly have seen um, sort of innovative benefits and total rewards leaders that champion this across the enterprise and say, we have an opportunity to do something categorically better, higher impact for us and higher impact for our workers. Um, oftentimes with a similar or maybe only slightly bigger budget than we're currently spending on tuition reimbursement and not seeing any ROI on it. So it can certainly be um, sort of an innovative benefits leader, can also be um, an L&D leader um, who has sort of a, a purview across the enterprise who says, how do we really think about reskilling um, into those hard to fill roles of internal talent? Um, it can also be talent attraction leaders who are saying, um, you know, who are, are raising the alarm that they cannot meet um, the, the requirements um, that they've been asked to meet around filling these roles and that they need a different approach. They need a different employee value proposition, employee brand in order to attract the talent that they want into the roles. Um, there's a really interesting um, Wall Street Journal article around the um, study that Amazon commissioned Gallup to do that was out last week um, on uh, sort of how, how deeply employees value upskilling. And Ardeen Williams, who's the VP of Workforce at Amazon, had a great quote that said, career progression is the new minimum wage. Um, that uh, that uh, increasingly um, the frontline wages are being commoditized. Um, and the way in which an employer differentiates why come work for me is by saying, come and work for us, get a paycheck while you're gaining the skills and the credentials you need to launch your career in a wholly new and different way, either with us or at another employer after you're done your education. Um, and I thought that was a really compelling um, framing that really, I think, speaks to some of the things that our talent attraction leaders are thinking about around how they differentiate their employer brand in this um, sort of incredible war for talent moment. And so that's all to say, it can come from any of those places. We've also seen it come from the business unit leaders themselves, those who run, you know, uh, 5,000 people, central services facilities or stores who are desperately looking for new ways of attracting, retaining, and skilling talent who maybe go to their HR business partner and they say, please, can you help me think about a new way of doing this? Um, and then more times than not, we actually work with a coalition of those leaders who come together and say this challenge is bigger than any one of us. And so how do we actually form a group and go after it together at an enterprise level? Um, and those are the companies that we see be most successful is when you actually have a coalition of cross-functional, very senior leaders all rowing together around how they solve this problem in the near term and how they build capacity to solve it over time in the long term. Um, so that's the, the second question that you asked, which is, who does this live under? Who right. Who does this? Usually there's a catalyzer. Right. Um, usually there's somebody um, and you, you know it when you see it. They just, you know, they have fire in their belly to do something different for their business and do something different from their workers. And then they go and they get their other senior peers rallied around a common vision and they go, you know, do something big. And oftentimes we see this is all the way up to the CEO and board level. Mm -hmm. when, when our partners launch, um, launch, launch with Guild, um, it's often their CEO on, um, on national news um, talking about it. Um, and so it really is quite a large enterprise commitment. 
Yeah, I've seen what, I, and and, I, and I'm glad you referenced the uh, the study. I, I've also seen, you know, the folks that are historically kind of in workforce planning that look, you know, five years out, ten years out, and they're looking at the skills. They see the skills gap. Uh, I've seen those folks, uh, especially over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. you know, raise the flag like, OK, we're we're, <laughs> we're the walls right in front of us. Right. <laughs> exactly. Oh. Yeah. Their eyeballs get big. Yeah. <laughs> the other um, the other stakeholder that's become incredibly influential within our work um, has been the diversity, equity, inclusion mm-hmm. leaders. Yeah. Um, and it's it, you know, I think that the the ones that we have been working with, what they're saying is we can't just go and um, basically fight for the same populations that other employers are fighting for, because that's a zero sum game. When you actually, and then they start to look at their own workforce and they start to see the incredible diversity within their frontline ranks. And they start to think about what would it actually look like for us to help them gain the new skills and the credentials that they need to advance their career. So we actually build those diverse pipelines from within and um, create net new opportunity for America's workforce as a result um, and really be a part of the, the systems change effort. Um, and that is a, a very powerful, powerful um, approach, and we're seeing it work. Um, and so we're seeing, for example, a Black worker enrolled in a guild program is two or three X more likely to be promoted than one not. Um, and so it really is a pretty efficacious and pretty um, quantifiable um, uh, sort of uh, uh a solution in yeah. order to create opportunity um, for Black and Brown workers. Um, the other thing that we're seeing, where we're seeing DEI leaders show up, is as they do scans across their benefits and say, "How equitable are our benefits to our workers?" What they're finding is they often are spending um, probably more money than they think they're spending on tr- traditional college tuition reimbursement to those master's degrees, those MBAs, et cetera. And they're primarily going to um, their their high earners because those are the ones that can afford to pay out of pocket and be reimbursed later. They're primarily going to men and they're primarily going to people who are white. And then they're saying, well, what is it about the design of this benefit that is categorically preventing our um, lower wage um, earners, our people of color and our women from participating. And that's what gets them thinking about things like, how do we make sure that they don't have to pay out of pocket and be reimbursed later? How do we make sure that the learning providers they have access to are, are built for them? So we're working with a lot of historically black universities as one example, to make sure that, that those programs are available to the workforce. Um, and so they're really taking a pretty systemic look at their all their benefits and all their of the equitable approach for all their benefits. And then they're seeing that this one really pops is one that's not equitable. And they start to take steps to think about how they make it otherwise. I love, first of all, I love everything you said. It makes sense. So um, the, the question that I, that I asked about candidates, really, really what I'm mm-hmm. trying to drive at is, um, and when I did a bunch of millennial um, research a few years ago, one of the questions that they asked uh, in the interview process was, how are you going to make me better? You know, the mm-hmm. phraseology could be mm-hmm. a, a bit different, but um, they came to the table, 
you know, in your first interview, they came to the table expecting that the company was going to make them better, which I think is, was fascinating. And I think it was absolutely uh, appropriate. A lot of, a lot of recruiters did not answer the question, of course. <laughs> so, so, um, you know, fast forward a couple of years. Um, what are you seeing that candidates just, they just, they, you know, it's table stakes. They just expect employers to skill them up in this, you know, in these areas. Yeah. And you know, that's, that trend has accelerated faster than I ever thought imaginable. And so like one of the things that, um, one of the things that I think is the silver lining of the last year and a half that we went through together with this pandemic is it created this sort of great awakening in society. Um, this great reassessment, I believe is what some people have called it, where people are really thinking about what matters to them? Who do they want to be? Um, and how do they get there faster? Um, and so we see record, um, record interest in returning to education um, uh, for our adult populations because they have decided they want to be something different. Um, and you'll even hear on, you know, the, the New York Times Daily podcast, for example, they did a, one of these sessions of, a few weeks ago where they have workers saying, you know, for the first time in my life, I don't have bags under my eyes because I'm not on my feet for 15 hours a day in a hot kitchen. And I've decided I don't want to go back to that again. And so um, I, I want to make something um, I, w- I want to make something different in my life. And so I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to figure that out. And so you really do see this great reassessment of work. And that's why you see um, from a talent attraction perspective, these education upskilling programs being such a differentiator because people say, OK, I can go back to that job and I can go do that job for a few more years if I know that that job is then going to pay for um, me to gain the skills and credentials, I need to move into something different. Um, so that then gets to your, your, your core question, which is what is it they want? What are the new skills and credentials they want? What are the jobs that they are looking for? And I think it's a fascinating question. And the answer is, for the most part, they don't know. Um, and I think this is one of like the tragedies of the commons in our society mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. um, is around career navigation and guidance. Um, and so this is, uh, you know, I'm sitting in San Francisco right now. And when I think about there, there's basically if I wanted to say I want a new job, I want to become an IT support specialist. How do I do that? And then I also asked a, a, a completely different question, which is like, I'm hungry. I want a great meal how do I find the best meal based on my preferences and my interests? On the second question, there'd be a whole ecosystem of apps and discovery services to help me navigate um, to and purchase the best meal for exactly my preferences. There is absolutely nothing, no infrastructure, no, no discovery tools, no review systems to help me find the best educational program to help me change jobs. You go and you put it into Google and what whoever has paid the most to show up above the fold right. is the one you click on. And those are mostly for-profit predatory colleges yep. that have low quality programs that aren't aligned with careers. And that is incredibly tragic. And so a big thing that we're investing in and that I believe many other groups are also thinking about and should be thinking about is how do you actually help, especially your lower opportunity adult populations, 
um, uh, those were who were you know born into into families where everyone that they know um, works um, works within works within frontline jobs. How do you help them even understand what are the jobs that are out there, and not just understand what they are, but believe that they can become those things? There's this sort of belief and confidence, or what I would call occupational identity, what you believe you can be. That's an incredibly important part of this career navigation journey. Someone doesn't just wake up one day um, when you're a cashier at Walmart and decide you want to be a farm tech, right? Um, there's actually this whole like process that's deeply human and very emotional um, uh, that is around discovering what you want to be and then believing you have what it takes to pursue it. And so that's why our organization, we take a pro an approach where we have um, close to 400 uh, full-time coaches at this point that will work hand-in-hand hand with workers as they're discerning, what do I want to become? What skills and credentials do I need to become that thing? And how long will it take me? And then support them in through that process and being successful. So you've been around long enough that you've heard kind of the historical or argument against training. If we train them uh, and they leave, uh, you know, what if we, we have invested in them and they leave? What, what, what have we gotten for that? Well, fast forward, thank God that those, I, I think those conversations are minimal if they're still, if they still exist at all, but you probably still have some people that have some reluctance for, to make the investment. Um, let's let's do two things before we roll out. One is how do you deal with reluctance? You know, when you interact with folks that maybe don't see the full uh, picture. And then, uh, lastly, your favorite customer story, mm. without naming names. Yeah. Um, how do I deal with reluctance? So the reality is, is every employer in this country today. Um, has a critical, critical pain um, as it relates to human capital, whether it's attracting retention, right. whether it's hard to fill roles. And so really it's around bringing them back to what is the problem you're trying to solve and then walking them through what at this point is incredibly robust third-party validated data on the efficacy of investing not only in education as a benefit, but investing broadly in programs to upskill and reskill your workers for the jobs of tomorrow. Um, and so I really like to go back to, you know, while every employer has has shared pain, um, um, I like to go back to what is the unique challenge that you are facing in the context of your business and your industry and your geography? And then how do we support like a data-driven case around the value you're going to get by investing in your workforce in the following ways? And I tend to find that that, that, that works um, uh, more oftentimes than not. Um, we like to talk about there's hearts and minds and Guild is a, is a benefit corporation, which means we're, we're here to certainly to make money and to grow, um, but we're also here to have a big impact on, um, on opportunity in this country. And we see those two things as incredibly inter, interlocked. Um, and we like when our employers do as well. We like when they see the business case, we're investing in this because it's high ROI 
for our business in a very quantitative dollars and cents way. And we're also doing it because it's the right thing for our workers and it's going to help change the face of opportunity in this country. And so I do think the data-driven case is the thing that gets people over the line when they're reluctant. But I also don't, I also like to make sure that we keep it human and we make sure it's very clear that the lives that they're changing as a result of investing in their business. Love it. Favorite customer survey, uh, customer story. Favorite customer story. Without naming names. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to do that. Just like something that you're really inspired by. I mean, you, you've already given people so many, uh, so many tidbits and great notes on why this makes sense and how they can actually put it into play. Just something that you really just like, you look at it and you're like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah. So I have so many, I don't even know where to start. Um, but you know, my whole career has been around creating opportunity um, for working adults through education. And um, it is uh, it is a much har- harder thing than it sounds. None of our education systems at any level were really um, built for for lower opportunity learners. And I generally believe we are we are failing lower opportunity learners at every every stage of our education system. And so when I see um, employers being able to step up and create tension in the system to say, we actually need something categorically different from our colleges and our universities and our training providers. We need you to serve the frontline. We need you to do it with high quality outcomes. And we're going to be, we're going to be watching, right? If it's not high quality, we're not going to, partner with you anymore. Um, and so the sort of the, the pressure that employers collectively now are putting on the broader education ecosystem to get better, to improve and to improve for low opportunity adults. That's the story that keeps me coming back and doing this work because that doesn't just change then the lives of people who work for these companies. It changes the lives of any learners going to those educational um, institutions across our country. And so that's not one customer story. It's more a story around how this work is helping um, drive and incentivize an entire ecosystem of higher education to be more student centric. And I think that's a, it's a pretty amazing story to be watching. Oh yeah. It's changing lives and, and uh, families and <laughs> trajectories. And again, I love the way that you tied inclusion and equity quality back into this. It's like, it's, you know, again, it's the right thing to do, but there's also a bunch of other reasons to do it. So um Allison, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. And and thanks for everyone listening to the Recruiting Daily Podcast. Until next time. You've been listening to the Recruiting Live Podcast by Recruiting Daily. Check out the latest industry podcasts, webinars, articles, and news at recruitingdaily.com. 